0: Well, hello, everyone. Before we get into this video, I would encourage you to please look at this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and other platforms. If you could rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, that would help me immensely. Thank you so much, and please enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Prince of Politics, Mr. Watson. I am your host, Christian Watson. And with me today, I have one of my favorite public intellectuals, I would call him, and one of my favorite anti-woke activists, James Lindsay here, joining us to talk about critical race theory and things of that sort. And so, uh, Mr. Lindsay or James, I'll call you James, how you doing? And just tell the viewers about who you are and what you do before we get started.
1: Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks for having me. Um, So I run a website primarily as is like the main thing I do other than Twitter, obviously. (laughs) I run a website called New Discourses. It's at newdiscourses.com. My goal with that is actually to provide as much information as possible to people as uh, quickly and freely and accessibly as possible um, so that they can understand what's going on with the so-called woke movement that's happening all around us um, that's unfolded very quickly, brought us into something as People are beginning to point out more and more clearly that it looks like a cultural revolution in the United States. So I'm trying to lay out the underpinnings of that, help people understand what's happening, how these theories operate, what's in the theories that underlie what's going on, um, and how they use language, which turns out to be a very important element of their activism.
0: Yeah, well, so you know, I have, I have this line of thought about this entire thing, because for me, as, a, as an aspiring philosopher, as a philosophy student right now in university, I like to try to think, th- think through things in a method- methodological way. Um, and perhaps that's, that's more of an advent of more recent philosophical traditions than general ones, because I know back in the ancient days, there were some that didn't care about methodology at all. And I know that many woke traditions don't care about methodology at all. Well, they care about their methodology, but I don't consider it scientifically valid methodology. Um, but help me out with this. There, are, there have been many books, works from the right whether it's William F. Buckley's God and Man at Yale, whether it's Poison Diving, that have for decades upon decades upon decades, it stole the vices of academia and have sort of stuck it to the academic establishment. And, and Buckley's God and Man at Yale was mostly, um, they were trying to disabuse um, uh, students of their religiosity. They were trying to erode traditional values and Poison Diving was more, okay, These. These universities like these Ivy universities, their prestige is not warranted because they are actually um, committing epistemological horror. And there are just all kinds of attacks that have been going on for a long while. How do you think the sentiments from the 60s and 50s with Buckley and all the other people who had to attack academia fit into the current disposition of academia uh, with the critical race theory stuff, because as we know, critical race theory didn't really arise until the seventies, and these guys are writing about these issues way right before then. So, how has it changed? Does it does do the same criticism still fit, or is it on a grander scale now?
1: I would say that it's accelerated and become much more pointed. But these trends were already happening in the university. Easily going back into the 1960s, uh, it's somewhere in in that time period when leftist intellectuals, as activists, started to try to change the nature of um, departments in universities, in particular, and the kind of bigger and more progressive and more, um, I don't know, country clubish Harvard, Ivy League, et cetera, schools, kind of you know took up this vanguard more than others. But the idea was going to be that the the you know, we were in the civil rights era in the 1960s. Massive social, cultural, and political changes were happening in the country of great significance. And the universities, for whatever reason, decided that they wanted to be at the absolute cutting edge of the, those social changes and of the new attitudes they wanted to bring into the world. They were the smartest. They were the best. They were the brightest. They were going to lead this uh Country into kind of a brave new world of of abandoning our kind of uh, you know failed traditional values as they would have seen it. This of course would have been in line with exactly what Mao was doing in China. At the same time, many of these leftist intellectuals were huge fans of Mao. They were watching what Mao was doing. They thought what was going on the revolution in China was a great idea. Was a great thing. They talk very positively about it. If you read these kind of like Herbert Marcuse, these kind of big leftist intellectuals from the 1960s before the full horror of what was actually happening in China became clear in the West, they were writing very positively about the Chinese Revolution. And one of Mao's goals was to break away from the old, to destroy the four olds, as it were, uh, and to reinvent a new Marxist-Leninist-style China but with Chinese characteristics, as far as the philosophy goes, that's what Mao's phrase was: as it was Marxism or uh, communism with Chinese characteristics. And so they wanted to do the same thing here. These same kind of you know Marxist or neo-Marxist intellectuals, and there was kind of just this, I don't know. It, it even today it's the case that there's there's the ability to signal that you are special, that you're ahead of the curve, that you're more progressive, that you understand things better. You understand the more complex nature of how things go wrong. If you adopt these very progressive positions and the colleges and the Ivy leagues really leaned into that. At the same time, you had people like Rudy Deutschky laying out the so-called long march to the institutions and uh, Herbert Marcuse, who I just named was also recommending a march into the, the collegiate institutions, universities, and the objective for those things was going to be to try to remake the university culture. So we're talking, again, 60s and 70s, trying to remake university culture in line with uh, ultimately what, what Antonio Gramsci had laid out in the 1920s, which was just it got Gramsci's prison notebooks got translated into English at Notre Dame by Pete Buttigieg's dad, uh, Joseph Buttigieg. Uh, in 1970, so people who could read Italian would have had access to those earlier, but they got translated into English in 1970. So this was a, a, this is all happening right around that time, and so the universities kind of veered off from their traditional path, and these kind of thinkers that you've mentioned saw this ahead of ahead of time. They saw that they were actually trying to rather than preserve and transmit and understand culture they were actually shifting into the marxian frame of the point is not to understand but to change and so the goal became to change culture to shape culture to mold culture through the university system and so the the betrayal of the universities to our society and culture right now is is just almost impossible to uh overstate they they truly did betray our society you know thinking themselves wise they became fools as the christians might put it um And that has accelerated because there have been no, you can think of it like a train rolling down a hill, right? But they remove the brakes. You can't criticize what they do because then you're, you're participating in those systems of, of oppression. You're a bad person some, in some way or somehow. You must have false consciousness. You must be too stupid to understand the truly systemic nature of problems in society. So they, they undermine people's moral and epistemic authority and thus remove the brakes from this train barreling down the hill away from um, you know a stable society down toward the cliff. And they think, of course, on the other side of the cliff, this society collapses and a new liberated society no longer impeded by the problems of of the existing order will emerge more or less spontaneously as long as people all believe the right stuff. It's the same classic error that every communist or if we want to call them neo-communists or you know, race communists or ethno-communists, same fundamental error that that they all make and have made since the early 19th century uh, which is that if you just get the existing order out of the way, a perfect new one will emerge because that's ultimately the real nature of reality. And the, the whole problem is that the status quo stands between us and a perfect world, or at least a perfectible world.
0: And doesn't it seem so paradoxical that the moment, if they were to achieve um, their sort of changes, I think Vogelin would have said um, the eschaton, so sort, of, sort of. And, and, and Buckley translated yeah. Oakland saying, and to emanatize the eschaton, if these sort of Gnostic revolutionaries would have obtained their goals, they would have then became the status quo. And you would have then seen a sort of self-contradictory status there. Right. Um, you know, That's actually no-
1: one of uh, Michel Foucault's critiques of the whole project. He, you know, he no. became very cynical. He's technically wouldn't be classified being a postmodern philosopher, he would not be classified as being neo Marxist, but rather as post Marxist. And that's a not insignificant distinction. Um, they both come out of this kind of broadly Marxian line of thinking, but the postmodernists and the post Marxists more generally had abandoned the idea that such a thing is possible to work out. And so he, you know, Foucault rightly recognized. That if exactly what you just said, if you were to tear down the existing structure, what you're, all, what you're going to end up with is a new structure that fills it in. Um, and so his whole thing was just this kind of pessimism, like, well, let's just keep tearing everything down forever. This kind of perpetual, uh, either whether you want to call it deconstruction or um, criticism or whatever it is. And this is what, of course, I don't know if you've read Martin Gurry's revolt of the public, but that's what he's mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah, it's a key text. That's what the internet has enabled is a world in which we've shifted away from either left right politics or whatever, to um, that which centralizes or builds and that which is decentralizing or that tears down. And the all the superpowers exist in the decentralizing side, because they have nothing to lose, and they can tear apart anything they want. And anything who, anyone who tries to build something, anyone who tries to institutionalize or create a center uh, through which something can be done, those eros- eroding forces and deconstructive forces are all around them and will eventually tear them apart. And uh, this is the horrific situation that we find ourselves in that we might describe as living in postmodernity, is that nothing... Basically, it's that all the castles we try to build are now made of sand because people are so eager and content to tear them down, which ultimately comes down to the fact that we've created massive incentive structures for tearing things down. And so the way out, which is this is a vague way out, is to reverse those incentive structures to where people who are just tearing things down are held with derision and shame rather than held up and given prestigious appointments and endowed chairs and, you know, big appointments and huge rewards and, and fellowships and scholarships and grants and every other damn thing that, that that's happening right now. We're rewarding the wrong things.
0: Yes, we are. Um, Yes, absolutely. Um, And, you know, um, to focus on this point of deconstruction and what I see uh, not inherent to the idea of deconstruction, because the idea of deconstruction in my opinion can take multiple forms independent of any particular social context, but, the context we've seen deconstruction manifest in, uh, insofar as the Marxist class rage, and then how that kind of, that sort of neo-Marxism kind of translated into the race theory and the gender theory and all these other sort of academic rhetorical devices. I think, and tell me if you think I'm, I'm making an amateurish mistake here, but I think very deep below um, the foundations for all of these um, ideas is pain. I think very, very deep below the foundation for Marx, Marx's, you know, economic system and and the and the value system of his followers. Even though I don't think really Marx, really gave an ethical value system at all, which is one of the problems of his philosophy is ultimately, pain. It's rage and it's an inability to, um, understand one's rage, uh, in relation to an introspective quality. It's an inability or an unwillingness to do so. I think that we all have the capability for introspection. And so, when individual rage manifests on a broader scale and is then seen as only solvable by political action, I think you get things like Marxism. But if people recognize yeah, right. that that rage and and pain, these things exist in your private sphere, and you can handle them, and they don't sacrifice their power to this amorphous authority beyond them, I think that you get less of Marxism. Am I making a little sense, or am I? You're making
1: a lot of sense, actually. So, you know, this is what what Nietzsche named resentment. Um, which is like resentment on steroids <laughs> or I, yeah. I like to use the phrase curdled envy it's yeah. like if you can imagine like envy is like a pot of milk that's gone bad and has sour chunks floating <laughs> in it that's resentment. That sounds not.
0: disgusting <laughs> yeah
1: well, well that's what it is though is it's like resentment that's bred out of envy that's turned as you said angry it's filled with with pain it's filled with uh with with the desire for vengeance, the desire to tear down that which do, you don't think is rewarding you, it's also um, as psychologists today might put it more accurately, it is it, it's it's a move toward external loci of control uh, mm-hmm. rather than internal. So rather than seeing the problem as something that's within you or something that would within your range to solve, you see it as something external to you, something that's moved into the the realm of the so-called system. And so throwing rocks at the at the system or trying to tear down the system becomes the project rather than looking into yourself and saying, what am I doing wrong? What can I do right? More importantly, even if you're not doing anything wrong yet, what can I do to, to, to improve or rectify the situation? And within a capitalist system, of course, the idea is what can I do? In a way that it also becomes often marketable or in a way that that helps other people in a way that there becomes you know a basis for economic exchange or whatever and if it turns out you know we have all kinds of programs if you if you or approaches i should say not programs if you can't figure out a way to make it economically viable that's what foundations are for and that's why we give them nonprofit status and so you can create a foundation and bid for whatever uh so this is ultimately you know one of i just talked about one axis of the culture shift that we're undergoing which is Mm -hmm. a shift to centralization or institutionalization versus decentralization and a lot of people think of that in a very positive way they think about like cryptocurrencies and and blockchain and so on and they think oh yeah decentralization is good but decentralization has the problem that it doesn't have any building capacity of its own which becomes Mm -hmm. it doesn't have any capacity to create institutions it only has capacity to to get away from them so it's a double-edged uh but this is another axis and this axis is r- responsibility versus resentment to put it as simply and plainly as it can be put there are people who are willing to look at a situation and say how can i take responsibility to make this better whether it's my own circumstances that's jordan peterson says that you know you have to clean your room you have to take responsibility for yourself then you can go out and start taking responsibility for the world that's clean your room you know Get your own affairs in order before you try to change the world or something like that, you know, his 12 rules. And this is correct. You, there are people who are ready to take responsibility. What can I as an individual do? How can I form networks and teams and, and groups of people around me who are willing to take, you know, responsible action to improve the circumstance? And then there are the resentfuls who are angry, resentful, venge, vengeance-filled, um, and willing to blame the system and willing to blame literally anybody but themselves so that they don't have to take responsibility. And then they expect, as you said, a state to be able to step in, for example, and, and, and fill in that gap. And so this, This split between resentfuls and responsibles, if you will, is another very important. If we were going to create like a new political compass, you know, resentment versus responsibility could be an axis, centralization versus decentralization, or institution versus decentralization could be an axis. And another, of course, would be, you know, globalism versus or collectivism versus individualism, or globalism versus sovereignty, or something like that. And you start to map out a new political space Mm -hmm. where the dividing lines actually lie, not this basic left right stuff not even the basic authority versus um, freedom although yeah freedom and control is yet another important axis. So there's a lot going on there but I think you're right about the resentment I think you're right about the vengeance that's hidden with it I mean Marx was explicit about that repeatedly uh, that you know he was going to get vengeance on God he was going to get vengeance on the society he, you know he's just angry um, and that's a huge part of it. I don't know if this is true or not but I talked to a guy who's got some psychological chops not that long ago. And he told me that the population divides, if you just break it down in terms of, you know, likelihood to take responsibility versus likelihood to fall into resentment. The population divides, whereas we're roughly two out of 10 people, roughly 20% of people are naturally bent toward they'll always take responsibility. And roughly 30% of people are not of that mindset. They will actually genuinely tend toward blaming the circumstances and the systems, the resentfuls. And then you have this battleground for the 50% in the middle. And it's a hard battleground because if your society has too many resentfuls, it collapses. If your society has enough responsibles, it flourishes. And you know, survives, continues and flourishes and builds. And so the question becomes, you know, how do you do that? If you think of that axis, you have a question at the decentralization question of how much is too much? you know, what's the right amount? How do we preserve institutions, even when we need to try to decentralize in in other ways? In other words, really, how do we, how do we, decentralized power within institutions while maintaining the institution those kinds of you know and then we have questions like you know what do we do with globalism that are that are on the on the front of the how much sovereignty does the, does the individual have versus collectivism how much sovereignty does a nation have against supranational entities these are the big questions of our day and it, a lot of people aren't even equipped to talk about these yet so Um, I know there's a big diversion. I kind of went into a whole political landscape map for you instead of just the question you asked about resentment. But I think you are right, that that's one of the crucial axes of what's happening right now.
0: No, I think, I think the, you know, one of my catchphrases is that what I try to do is I try to connect the human with the political and the political with the human and all I mean by that is that there are just some things that are within our nature that will naturally be reflective of our social interactions. And I think politics is kind of the culmination, the sort of ordered culmination of social interaction. So I think that it all is interrelated. and It's all very important. Um, You know, I, I, you mentioned Nietzsche, and I kind of want to touch on this because I see a lot of Nietzschean influence amongst the deconstructionist crowd and amongst some critical race theory crowd. You know, when I was, I, I was reading, goodness help me, I think it was the genealogy of morals, when yeah. Nietzsche said he, put, he posed the idea of having a transvaluation of values and having this super moral individual that transcends and reworks um, you know, the moral structures of society. And he kind of praised um, Jewish folks and, and the image of Christ, I think, for, for doing the same in their society and their religion. And, and when you have that kind of thing, you go over to Thus Spoke Zarathustra, I think, I think we interact on Twitter yeah. on this point, where talking like about three metamorphosis of spirit, the, the lion, the camel, the child, not in that order, of course, I think it's a different order. Um, you know, and, and this sort of how to become this sort of super moral person, how to become this sort of grand being um, beyond the mediocrity of society that society imposes upon you in the form of the camel, how to become this lion while also maintaining and becoming the child eventually. I mean, don't, isn't there a, a kind of, and, and I, I kind of, I asked this question before, and I I don't think people thought I understood it very well. So I'm ask, I'll ask you, isn't there a kind of more relativism, implicit in this kind of thinking? And even if Nietzsche has been misinterpreted by some nefarious entities throughout the world, whether it was the Nazis or whatever. Isn't there some basis that his framework for reality can be taken for evil ends? Because, you know, I think that he kind of enables it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the moral relativism is baked into that idea that if you have this, this, Ubermunch, uh the Superman, uh, the, you know, Zarathustra is kind of his <laughs> creation that is this. The the point of that super moral entity isn't that they're more moral than moral, it's that they are actually transcendent of morals. That the morals of society no longer apply to that person, yeah. which means by implication that there is some sense, if he's correct or to the degree that he's correct, that morals are or that our values are um, Kind of up for grabs. They're arbitrary on some level because you can transcend them and then you become better. If you just, in fact, they're they're not even just um, in this view, morals or value systems aren't just um, arbitrary. They're they're prisons you know, with maybe different decoration in the cell. And so Zarathustra it comes down out of the cave, he escapes that, you know, or whatever. It's not quite what happens with Zarathustra. Zarathustra meditates <laughs> on it in the cave. But you know what I'm saying I'm trying to make a yeah. bad metaphor here of escaping the prisons <laughs> of, of moral of moral obligation. And um, he becomes a superman. And, you know, I think this is what we interacted on about on Twitter about, but I'm not positive. But I think Foucault read yeah. Zarathustra and was like this is who I'm going to become and you you see that reflected where like Noam Chomsky did his famous debate with Foucault and he yeah. said that I he actually is. liked him right he said I like the guy but he's the most amoral individual I've ever met and it's creepy how amoral he is like morals just don't apply anything goes uh, I mean kind of Foucault one of Foucault's big points if you wanted to like boil it down to a handful of what was Foucault really about in simple language was, as he phrased it, I know it's not simple language, but it makes sense, is expanding the potentialities of being. How can we escape the conf- confines of moral society so that we can live in different ways? And so that moral relativism has to be presupposed to get to there. And then the problem is that you know, following from Nietzsche, you, you end up with the will to power which, you know, we've, we've mentioned uh, Vogelin. I believe Vogelin's the one who named it, maybe it's not Vogelin who named it, the libido dominandi, the will, the, the, the desire to dominate. Mm-hmm. And when you, it's probably the case, although this is a bigger question than I have chops to answer, it's probably the case that moral systems are largely designed and they evolve within societies to constrain the libido dominandi to Mm. identify the people who think that it is all just about power and to marginalize their view as somehow corrupt, somehow dangerous, somehow inappropriate, uh, and, you know, frankly evil. Um, Mm. And so I think that this is a place where, you know, you can say that Nietzsche in some very real sense becomes the consummate critic in the same, you know, German critique, style that you know you have with Marx you have the critical theorists Mm -hmm. but his was of the idea of morality you know and when you decide that you're just going to level an absolute you have Kant doing his critique of pure reason Mm -hmm. for good and for ill you have over here though we have Nietzsche doing a critique of morality at Mm -hmm. such a profound level that the outgrowth of that Whereas there's a great deal to learn from it, obviously, and he's a very, you know, insightful and brilliant thinker, there's also a great deal of, of potential for, for evil and harm that can grow out of that because morals for me, morals and value systems are approximations that evolve over time in societies that don't fail. (laughs) I mean, it's a little more complicated than this, but ones that are kind of established traditional systems of morals evolve over time in societies that don't fail um, because they work. They are kind of like approximations of how to get toward human flourishing uh, that to better and worse degrees work. They create levels of social cohesion. They create levels of societal stability. They create opportunities for flourishing. Obviously, you know, I don't think they're all on a on, on a level. I don't think that we can be relativistic. I think that some do better than others, and we can actually compare them um, by, you know, judging by their fruits. But um, that said, you know, I think that, that this approach that we see within Nietzsche is is dangerous. We also see, you know, in the same in the genealogy of, genealogy of morals, where he's talking about the slave morality rising up and basically subverting the master's morality, you see exactly the roadmap for the woke movement or critical race theory, which is to get inside and to subvert the existing moral order, the existing cultural hegemony, subvert it from within, turn it upside down, turn it, make it perverse so that that which is moral becomes immoral, that which is uh, good becomes bad, and everything turns on its head. And what you will see if that can't be safeguarded against is the collapse of the society and replacement by a new one maybe you know he holds up the example of of, of jesus within the jewish society i know that the jews wouldn't agree but the christians <laughs> no. would certainly are christians would certainly agree that this was an example of elevating their their moral circumstances and so that this revolution was good and um that's for the other people to argue about Uh, Whereas in this case, though, you can see, as you pointed out with the resentment, the rage, the vengeance, and the, frankly, absolute lack of understanding how any damn thing works at all, that these critical approaches like critical race theory and the queer theory and so on are not likely to lead to a higher moral plane, but rather to the kind of failures that we saw under people like Mao and Stalin and Lenin uh, throughout, and even Hitler, uh, frankly, Um, it's kind of like, to be honest with you, my opinion of the woke movement is that it's like taking the kitchen sink of all the worst, worst programs of the 20th century and figuring out how to turn them into one kind of Frankenstein's monster. You got the racism of the Nazis. You got the, you know, vanguardism of Lenin and Stalin. You got the cultural revolution of Mao. I mean, it's the whole thing. You got the Lysenkoism, although it's, it's, so Lysenkoism was the biological or the agricultural program of the Soviet Union under Stalin, um, led by a guy Trofim Lysenko, and that's what it's named after. And we don't see it happening with agriculture, although this, you know, you'll eat bugs and no meat thing might kind of be part of that too, um, that they're, they're talking about a lot <laughs> oddly and uncomfortably. But the, the medical field has been completely subverted into anti-racism first, even to the point where now you have an experiment at a Harvard teaching college, or Harvard Teaching Hospital, I should say, that uh, is going to prioritize care by race. Um, This is actually happening. So we have begun medical lysenkoism in our society, already begun. This is actually already happening. It is not, you know, on the horizon. It's not a threat that might manifest. It's actually happening. And so it's like taking all the worst ideas of the Russian Revolution, of Stalin's hostile takeover, the Mao of Hitler, and the Oh yeah, let's just you know take these terrible communist p- programs and then like, throw racism into the mix too. Why not? You know, let's scapegoat an entire race um, and make that sort of the. I mean, it's a running joke now, right? You know, Absolutely. somebody gets beat up, somebody does a robbery or whatever. You don't have to know anything about it. It's like white supremacist, right? You know, is, what was that meme that was going around where it was like, uh oh, I'm the wrong It showed like the means. media. Oh well, it shows like the media. <laughs> It's like a it's like a it's like a family trying to shove like a queen size mattress or a king size mattress in like the back of like a Toyota Corolla or something. Right? <laughs> like it's not going to go. Yeah. No. And what it says on the people is like, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, it's like the it's the the media and then uh, the, the mattress is white supremacy. And then the car is any damn thing that happens or something like that. You know, like oh, yeah. they are trying to shove white supremacy into everything. Yeah. But this scapegoating of a racial characteristic has been attempted before. This was the experiment of the 1930s that went so badly in Germany. It turns out it was done before in China as well in the precursors to the, the Cultural Revolution. We've made these mistakes. And so, you know, this is a... This is a very concerning development that essentially nobody in our culture that has any institutional power or authority is willing to say, wait a minute, except maybe Ron DeSantis now, is willing to say, wait a minute, maybe these
0: are really bad ideas. Yeah. Um, Isn't it interesting that these people are deceived by their own artificial benevolence? You know, yeah, that, we can see yeah. it as evil. We both understand. We can, we can use rational methods to determine that this, this stuff has evil conclusions, but they're deceived by their own benevolence. I think. That's right. I, I, That's I, right. I, 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 I don't think Kimberly Crenshaw, who, you know, the queen pin of this entire thing, or one of them at least, I don't think that she thinks what she's doing is malevolent. I think that she thinks that the systems that she is opposing is malevolent, you know. That's right. And, That's right.
1: So, yeah. so on Christmas, I published this essay. And really the point was to talk about Joseph Piper's ideas of pseudo realities and yeah. to combine it with... Um, Lobachevsky's ideas of of political evil uh, and psychopathy and other psychopathology. And so I wrote this essay. It's called something like psycho psychopathy and the origins of totalitarianism. And what I point out following Joseph Piper is that using language, these very kind of um, these these critical theorists in general have manipulated language into literally believing in what? what Piper would describe as a pseudo-reality, what Lyotard would describe as legitimation by parology. So it has mm-hmm. a paralogical f- structure to it, a false l- logic that's manufactured in language by, by the force of consensus, but it doesn't mm-hmm. reflect reality accurately. Um, and the pseudo-reality, the, the key trait about the pseudo-reality is that what I, what I observed is that when people believe a pseudo-real construction sufficiently, And they are convinced of its moral necessity. So there's your, your, you know, being seduced by their own beliefs about their benevolence. Mm. They no longer possess the capacity to distinguish, to even to understand reality. They only understand what they see in terms of the pseudo-reality, the pseudo-real description of what they see. So in the critical race pseudo-reality, the first premise is that the society is fundamentally racist. It is the fabric of society, that racism is the ordinary science, the the, the underlying operating system. The question is not did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in a situation? Mm-hmm. That's the underlying assumption of that pseudo-reality. That is the first, and there are others, there are other core presuppositions that they take. And so when you view the world in that way, that racism is present in all interactions, racism is the defining... Uh, characteristic of all institutions, including the society itself, including its knowledge system, including its language system, including every possible thing that you can imagine that you could call a system, a structure, an institution, or even an individual, and that you add in stuff like you know willful ignorance, that people have internalized this view of racism, whether as as people who are dominant or people who are oppressed on whichever side of their the coin, you know, when when you have this, Completely kind of hermetically sealed worldview that presupposes that racism is everywhere, always, it's imminent just beneath the surface. Every instance of you know, even impoliteness, or I mean, it's not yeah. even like I'm trying to think of a, there's not even a word for how stupid some of this stuff is, it becomes like the so ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, it's like the thing that just happened in Portland, right? Where the Portland high school, Woodrow Wilson high school comes out and says that pine trees are a symbol of racism because trees evoke the idea of lynching. And I mean, it doesn't matter that you, you can't hang somebody in a pine tree, man. It's like, well, you could, but it's not easy that the limbs are wrong. It's, you need a hardwood. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. I'd make a joke about me being a Southerner, but I've never participated in such a thing. But no, the truth is, I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous that things that have nothing, like pine trees are now racism. It's like the worst example of like a a free association test run amok to find racism in everything that you can pop pine trees. And so at that point, it's like when you actually believe that this is how the world is ordered to the point where you think that, it's not even like, oh, racism used to be in this or that has racist roots or that's Pine trees have nothing to do with racism whatsoever nothing. You cannot find a way that pine trees are racist in reality. When you actually believe that and you think that you're challenging that, you do think that you're, you're moral. You do think that you are on the alleged right side of history. But the problem is, and I mean this in a very genuine way, but not in the totally literal way, you are psychopathic. You, are, you have lost the capacity to understand reality as it is and are attempting to force yourself and especially others to live in the way that you misinterpret reality because you don't have the tools right. any longer to handle reality as it is. And so when I say this I'm I want to distinguish two things within psychopathy so I don't get myself or you in trouble. Okay. All right. There is what's known as essential psychopathy which is the okay. legitimate, you know, 0.8% of the population who Experiences, no empathy, et cetera, and all of the you know, usual things. And then there is something that could be called functional psychopathy which is that you've, exp- you've taken on an ideological view. You no longer interact with reality as it is. You've got an overwhelming moral impulse to push that view. And so that it results in, you know say a, a, narr- a dramatic narrowing of your range of interpretations and mm-hmm. especially your range of compassion and empathy. They talk about compassion and empathy all the time. They have the narrowest range of compassion and empathy I've ever seen. They are unable to care about anything except the problems that their pseudo real theory says yep. exist in the world. And this is the you can't scapegoat an entire racial group without massively narrowed empathy, and um, this is this is in a sense a functional form. They're not psychopathic, in like that. There's something wrong with their brains, and that they suffer or benefit from whatever it happens to be that condition. It's that they have become functionally psychopathic by enacting an ideology and trying to live in reality as though it is this pseudo reality described by their set of beliefs the ideology is psychopathic so they become psychopathic by enacting it and the thing is if you were to say you know take queen pin kimberly crenshaw i like that and you like <laughs> if you had magic powers right and you could go yeah. up to her and snap your fingers right in her face and all of a sudden she's like oh crap this is all wrong two three months or at least 18 months or so a year and a half down the road because you see this with people who yeah. get caught up in cults, you see this with people who get caught up in, you know, kind of perverse religious things or whatever yeah. else that they suddenly if they break from the cult, it takes them a year, sometimes a few months, sometimes a year and a half or so. And all of that twisted thought unravels, having come from yeah. the atheist movement myself, you know, in terms yeah. of where I got my start being a public figure, if you will. Yeah. Um I watched that happen with so so many. I mean, it was a thing that every is like our testimonials in atheism land were like the unraveling of the religious mindset for where it all like you finally the the the, the outermost thread tore loose and the whole thing just starts unraveling. Uh, same thing would happen here. Um, any any such you know any cult would would certainly have this, and these critical theories are certainly a cult. I have a much broader and warmer view toward healthy religion now than i did you know 10 years ago but so it's nothing like that but the fact is that these things can happen people who are caught up in cults can be deprogrammed from the cult and when they do they don't continue to act in a psychopathic manner so that's what i mean but the difference between functional and essential psychopathy you can't deprogram an essential psychopath it's it's how they're wired for good or for ill
0: yeah Which uh, now, of course, we're playing a little bit of armchair here, but that's fine because I think these are important insights. Um, I don't think anyone would have presumed to been able to disabuse Jim Jones or or, or Charles Manson of, of their mindsets. So would you have would you say? And I'm not trying to liken Crenshaw or, or Bell or any of them to those people. I'm not saying that. Please don't. You actually
1: um. can, by the way. Angela Davis <laughs> wrote a letter of support to Jim Jones in the nineteen yeah. seventies. I oh, have oh, a copy oh. of it, I keep on my phone. So Angela Davis. You, oh. yeah. you can link in You can link her to Jim Jones because yeah. she linked herself to Jim Jones.
0: She's a terrorist. Charles I mean.
1: Manson, we can't link.
0: Yeah, she's a terrorist as well. Angela Davis. Absolutely. (laughs) I can't believe that she is. That's right. And she's a student, just to draw the link, she's a student
1: of Herbert Marcusa, who we named earlier, and she's cited as one of the most influential thinkers to Kimberly Crenshaw, who we just mentioned as Mm -hmm. well. So she is a bridge between the angry neo-Marxists of the 1960s to the critical race theorists of today. An, it is an undeniable link. Even besides the fact that her activism is still all in line with that, her prison abolition movement and police abolition movement, she's still running and leading. Yeah. It's all yeah. still there. But the link is there also in the citations. Kimberly Crenshaw read Angela Davis, and Angela yeah. Davis said she was radicalized by Herbert Marcusa. The link is all there. So yeah. we can yeah. link, and we can link her to Jim Jones, but not the rest necessarily.
0: Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, well, yeah, that's interesting. So, would you say that Kimberly Crenshaw, if you're gonna make this diagnosis, sort of, is she an essential psych- psychopathy person? Uh, Probably not. I would
1: say not. Really? She seems not. She she does not seem to be uh, that way. She seems to be caught up in that resentment that we were discussing earlier. That she has been, I would almost say, groomed to believe that the world operates in this very negative uh, way um this very essentially racist way, and yeah. that she has made it her life's mission to try to unmake that, which she sees as an, as an evil, I think it's very unlikely that the majority of the academics who push this stuff, I, I think that the majority of them are very sincere. I do not think that they're likely to be essential. I think that they are likely to have, I mean, you've heard the old saying, and I forget which philosopher said this, you know, ideas so ridiculous that only an academic could believe them. <laughs> um I think that yeah. this is this is what's happened. is that theory has gotten away. And you can, you can see people when they get indoctrinated into this that they're like, oh, I think in terms of systems now, my eyes were open to thinking in terms of systems. It's like the guy yesterday who said, like, all the anti-woke people, nobody can even say what woke is. And I was like, bro, <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> yes, yeah. You think in terms of systems and the yeah. systems for wokeness are not like uh, the critical consciousness that you would have seen for the neo-Marxists where they're being aware of um you know, consumer society and all of the ways that that conditions people to try to stay in consumer society. And it's not like the class consciousness of Marx. It's now this racial or not in just race, but identity based consciousness, that there are all these systems of power that interact along axes of identity. That's what woke means. It's not complicated. It means you've awakened to seeing the world in terms of systems instead of individual Uh, individual actions and individual hearts and individual minds who are able to to contemplate for themselves and reflect for themselves and act for themselves.
0: I think we'd be better off if people saw the world as systems of reality, you know, the cosmos, the laws of gravitation, natural law, rather than systems of power. I think we'd be much, much, much better off because those are things that are ubiquitous. They are, I think, absolute in my personal opinion. I think natural law is absolute. And I think those things, you can ascertain them through reason. They don't depend on your social status rather than engaging in this sort of what the woke crowd does, this sort of crass social reductionism, I would call it, perhaps it's not the right term, but I think it's reductionism, and essentializing um, race as the primary quality of not just every social interaction, but every interaction that occurs within reality, because apparently reality is nothing more, according to these people, than the sum of social institutions. (laughs) You know, it's just, it makes no sense. right?
1: Yeah, there's no, for them, there's no way to interpret reality whatsoever outside of social institutions, and the way that those social institutions condition, they call it socialize, but condition people to think. Um, And this is what it means to become woke is to think that you're constantly being brainwashed by society. It's literally like the craziest, grandest conspiracy theory ever. And they're able to completely dismiss everybody who goes against them by calling them all conspiracy theorists. Um, Where, I mean, I, I of course, always tweet about the iron law of woke projection, but (laughs) holy, holy cow, you know?
0: Your Twitter is wild, man. I have
1: to say, <laughs> I love it. That's right. I <laughs> I am wild on twitter.com. Um, uh, I don't yeah, understand I mean, why people get upset about it. It's like all you I have think to it's do is, yeah, there's one exactly one step between where snobby people are and enjoying my Twitter. One step yeah. exactly, which is Twitter's not real. That's the whole yeah. thing. Once I fully embrace the idea that Twitter is kind of like, it's kind of like a word-based video game, if you will. (laughs) It's not real. It's just making noise about things and playing a particular kind of game. Once you kind of understand that all of a sudden, you know, you stop clutching your pearls at everything that you see and you stop taking everything, first of all, but more importantly, yourself quite so seriously. Uh, It's, such important advice to take yourself less seriously on social media anyway. Oh, I agree. I think think in life,
0: but. Yeah, you you have to. I think that it, it takes a certain amount of introspection to know what is appropriate for what venue, in my opinion, this sort of text based medium that is ultimately, in my opinion, an impersonal medium of communication. I think you can be a little bit fun there. Uh, why not? But, you know, I, I've i seen people and, and there was this one individual. I won't mention his name, but there was this one individual who tweeted at you saying that the grievance politics of uh, James Lindsay is not what we need this, this writer individual. And I was thinking to myself, you know, and I said, I said, James, do you get this off? And he said, yeah, I get this from a leaks, you know, and I'm just like, you know, mm-hmm. it's just a shame that there are just uh, a contingent of people in the intelligentsia who think that if you do any kind of work outside of the auspices of some official institution or whatever, that doesn't give you their imprimatur, you're less legitimate. Um, have yeah. you encountered that a lot um, in your in oh, due course of doing this?
1: I mean, I get this all the time. I get it constantly. I finally figured out exactly which metaphor is the right metaphor for these people. And, you know, I don't, just like it's set up in the, in the, the construction of the metaphor, as I'll give it to you in a second, it's very difficult to blame them for what they're doing. Um, mm. But the metaphor is correct. If you've seen, and I know it's hackneyed to even bring it up, but, but it's so important because it is the relevant metaphor. If you've seen the film The Matrix, <laughs> there is a scene in the matrix where the one guy i think his name is cypher but i can't remember who all these dorks are you know he's his little little like <laughs> facial hair and he's he's like i just want to have steak like i don't care he's eating the steak and he's like i know it's not real but i don't care i don't want to have to eat like whatever the guy's porridge that tastes like glue is anymore i don't want to have to live on the lamb down in like a, a hidey hole in a cave or inside this uncomfortable cramped spaceship thing yeah. i want to live like it's the 1990s again at the height of hu- human civilization as it's framed in the movie and i want to be rich and i want to have steak and i'm willing to sell some people out to get it and that's what it is it's people who want the the what they want is The the institutions of society, as they understand them, have been rewarding them. They've been giving them status. They've been giving them that that's exactly what you were just mentioning. They have status tied up in the idea that they have institutional affiliation. They've been given Mm. a fellowship. They've been given a grant. They've been given money. Usually it's not about money as much, though, as it is about status. It's about because these are usually, you know, fairly middle class, comfortable people, mostly who are less worried about whether or not they're going to stay comfortable and more worried about whether or not they've got the right bona fides on their CV. if they're going to get invited to the right parties, if they're going to be able to hobnob with the right people and play the game and and rat race, they want to be plugged into the matrix because the matrix is comfortable for them. And when they encounter people such as myself, if I might be so bold, who have, you know, red pilled, so I've stepped out of the matrix, but then I go back into the matrix, that's Twitter, and I act as though the rules are different. I act as though I can jump from one building to another. I can bend the spoon. There is no spoon. I can dodge a bullet here and there. If I have to stop some bullets, why not? Um, Because it's pretend, it's the matrix. It's once you understand it and you grasp the nature of what's going on, the rules are different for you. That disrupts the ability of the people who realize that the whole thing is a like it's not as satisfying as Cypher or whatever his name is right. says to eat the fake steak if you actually know it's fake. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? Oh, no. And people such as myself acting the way that I act upset that entire order so they call me things like the r word they tell me that i'm a public menace to society or something like this they i mean that's one particular country clubber. uh they call me all kinds of names they put me down a lot and you know i didn't really i mean it's a hilarious tweet that trump did a long time ago and he was like something like that he loves all of his haters and losers they can't help that they were born fucked up and it's like there's a pretty serious level where it's just like, I mean, I'm not saying that about these people, but it's, I get it. It's, it's like creature comforts, but it's like societal creature comforts and they want to pre- preserve those. And so people like myself, you know, end up, it's, it, in a sense we were just talking about decentralization and deconstruction. It's like yeah. deconstructing that facade as well. Yeah. And uh, people don't like having their own facade deconstructed. Right. And that's, that, that's sort of what's going on there. But yeah, I get it constantly, literally constantly, six days a week, probably, or five days a week, I wake up and somebody has DM'd me a screenshot or a tweet from somebody who's decided to talk about how like mentally or emotionally deficient I am. What was the one that I saw today that I'm I'm treacherous? Like, I'm like, well, <laughs> that's sexy. No.
0: Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, uh, I, I don't get it like that. But I do get some stuff similar. Like well, there are people who will just simply just ignore me. Because apparently yeah. doing doing YouTube videos and podcasts, that's lowbrow. But writing for national review, writing, you know, having your thing on the front page, oh, that's that's wonderful, regardless of the quality of your work. And so I've kind of said, you yeah. know what, man, I don't want to play in the records. I want to do my own thing. And if you guys want to be in the rat race and, and, you know, get each other, you know, get to while you get your stuff published. Good for you, man. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not
1: no, that's not the thing though. It. It's like, it's people who are talking to Have you ever been to a party and you, you know, you thought you were kind of like in the crowd, but you don't really know the people real well, exactly. but you get to the party <laughs> and then the people are having their own, like conversations and you it's maybe it's just me this has happened to me a few times you just can't find any way to like create a real connection with anybody it's like they're all kind of with i mean i think seinfeld had like all of these episodes about parties like this and you just can't connect with anybody because they're all kind of it's not that they're better than you it's that they're literally excluding you because you're yes. not part of their clique and like you you are very much so made to feel like you're too weird for these people who maybe you esteemed or whatever. And that is the, the rat race. They're writing things to give each other pats on the back. They're writing things to congratulate one another, to feel proud for one another. They want their pat on the head from their favorite intellectual heroes. They want who I you know, I won't name any intellectual heroes, but they want a pat (laughs) on the head or a slap on the bum from, You know, whoever that's like, oh, no. you did good, you know, and and yep. that's it's this whole and, it, and in a sense it's very fake, and in the sense and when you look at kind of you're very generous. with the critical theorists and the postmodernists were complaining about, um, it is what they were complaining about. Is that there's this whole fakeness, this whole inauthenticity to modern contemporary life, and that you look at what Marx is talking about with bourgeois values, and that's really what he's talking about. Is yeah. that there's these country clubbers who don't want anything to do with the likes of you. And, you know, they have their own little system of values. And the whole thing is built up around gatekeeping so that, you know, occasionally they'll in- in- induct a new member or induce a new member, but not very often. And, you know, <laughs> then you've had, they, I don't think they do hazing and stuff like a fraternity, but then you've been, you know, branded as one of the cool kids and you get to be a cool kid and you get to go to the parties and you get invited to things and you're going to get to meet and network and you're going to get new opportunities and somebody's going to know something and there, there'll be some financial rewards to that. And you end up in this kind of club. And yeah. I mean, there's something literally wrong with me. I'll just say that because I never wanted to be in a single one of those things. I don't want, like, if I find myself in those things, it's like, how do I get out of this now? What if I like, shit, oh. I'm in
0: a, I'm in like a cult. How do I get out? Like, <laughs> I think it's wonderful, James. I, I do. I do. I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, Emerson, one of my favorite thinkers, even though I, I think he is much in the vein of Nietzsche in some er, ways, but there are tidbits of wisdom hidden throughout his work. Emerson said that there is nothing at last more sacred than the sanctity of man's own mind. And I think that there's something to that. And he said, he, he, he whoso would be a man must also be a nonconformist. And the real mark of a man, I'm paraphrasing now, the real mark of a man is he who can maintain the sweetness of solitude in the midst of the crowd. So there's a sort of relational quality here to being a man, being able to know what your values are, understand what your values are, not isolate yourself, but have enough distance, you know, have enough solitude within yourself to know what you're going to value for yourself or not. He wrote a different essay on, on solitude. He wrote for the Atlantic when the Atlantic was actually, you know, I was more impressed with it. You know, he wrote, um, He wrote they do some good stuff today, I think. But I think uh they do some good stuff. I mean, Hitchens wrote for The Atlantic. So I mean I can't I can't bash him too much. And I I don't agree with Hitch on a lot, but I respect him. I respect him as an intellectual. I wish his voice was still here. I think that he would be abhorred by the woke stuff, in my opinion. Uh I yeah, wish yeah. he was I wish he was still around. But um, you know, he also wrote that, you know, you 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 should have solitude. But when you go to social interactions, wear your own garb.
1: Wear yeah, your yeah, own yeah, garb. Yeah.
0: That's, that's exactly the big right. Point for me. So yeah, I mean, I think that you're wearing your own garb, and that's wonderful.
1: I, I try. I mean, it, in, on the other hand, it's like somebody asked me the other day, as far as garb goes, they're like, "Are we really in this this deep of an emperor has no clothes moment?" Yeah. And I was like, "Man, I know this is gonna get a little colorful for you." Uh, no, please. But please, but I please. was like, I was like, "Man, the emperor is literally doing the helicopter dick dance out in the middle of the public <laughs> square, and everybody's still <laughs> saying." look how fine his robes it's like dude you know it's like he's in there he's just like playing with it and people are like no he's it's such a pretty such a pretty shirt it's like it's really bad i mean it's this obvious at this point you know when we were trying to point out you know a couple of years ago about this we're playing the emperor has no clothes game and it was like you think and now it's like god how do you not what's wrong with you how do you not see this
0: Exactly. Uh, so, you know, speaking of institutions and country club stuff, you know, I'm, I'm my exposure to collegiate debate, as I said in the testimony, oh, no, excuse me, my exposure to critical race theory was in collegiate debate. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I figured it's fine idea. Why don't I go through some concepts that a lot of debaters use and ask you, you know, how they connect? Because I promise you all of them are critical concepts and how they connect with the general critical race theory stuff. So would you be up for that? OK, we can. OK. Try it. All right. All right. So there is this one theory. I'm not sure if familiar with him by Frank Roderson, called Afro pessimism. Um, the idea it's sort of like a Pan Africanist paradigm idea that you know um, I hope I'm describing this correctly that people of African descent have the imprimatur to be critical and pessimistic of every structure in society because they are all vestiges of colonialism. Is, the, is this a theme in critical theory i assume like the colonialism stuff is kind of a theme
1: yeah i mean so critical theories you know were kind of in their very pure form for a while and then they kind of started to split into these different disciplines and the colonial aspect is actually gigantic post-colonialism yeah. is one of the places in fact not only where critical theory took off um and its most vigorous arguments you know all the early neo-marxist arguments were like anti-imperialism anti-colonialism they really tapped into that you you you, they wedded themselves in the 50s and 60s with the so-called liberation fronts and that's what those were liberation well they build themselves as they were they were liberation from from liberalism is what they really were but they build themselves as liberation from colonialism where they were really ultimately marxist at their base and so you know that was a huge thing there and then the postmodern. Side the postmodernists were really you know interested in talking about the colonialist aspect, and so yeah. very quickly the postmodern theories were then appropriated by um, by activists like Edward Said you know scholar yeah. activists and Gayatri Spivak and, and and a handful of others. So the colonialist aspect certainly became this huge huge theme in these critical theories, um, and that. Afro-pessimism that you mentioned would fit squarely within that tradition then is like, oh, well, let's just take the lens that somehow colonialism has screwed people who look like me over and therefore everything must be somehow tied back to that system of domination that did genuinely reshape and reorder much of the world for a few centuries. Um, But to to maintain a, a pessimistic viewpoint within that would be very much in line with the critical theory approach. Uh, that's awesome. really kind of what that's, I mean, that's why we called the book that we wrote cynical theories, you know, and yeah. of critical theories
0: absolutely yeah. absolutely okay so there's this strategy in debate like literally this is a strategy that the debaters will employ it's called retelling time where they were like quite literally reimagine something and try to tell it from the perspective of a woman of a of a, a gay person of uh whatever 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 mm-hmm. identity and this really only works for the, for the minority debaters if white debaters do this they'll be called racist and white supremacist and they can't they can't do this <laughs> so this really only works for the minority debaters is this a theme in critical race there yeah, that's the telling of counter stories. Um, yeah,
1: which counter is words, one yeah. of the one of the the core. Like, if you look at the core pillars of critical race theory. Um, for some reason, you know, you don't see this in queer theory, you don't really see it in postcolonial theory, but you do see it in critical race theories, this tendency to list, like, this is what we're going to do. This is how this is what critical race theory is all about. And usually on the list, virtually always on the list is the use use of counter narrative and counter storytelling. And so this isn't quite identically the same as a counter story, but it's the, it is the same idea as like, oh, well, you know, you just told this story, you just offer this perspective. Now let's look at it again through the lens of a frankly angry black person or whatever and who <laughs> you
0: and, are irreverent and my friend
1: <laughs> I, I am but it's true this is you know and the thing is is a, it's a tragedy is what it is because yep. there is i think the need to expand these perspectives but then to turn that into a tool um that's used to to win debates or to yeah. tear down tear down people or silence other people or rather than seeking seeking truth it now becomes a mechanism of applying a dialectic that's meant to twist things in a particular direction and create advantage uh for the person doing it um that's a tragedy because i think that there there is a tremendous value actually in telling those kinds of counter stories
0: yeah
1: um and i i actually do think it's a that that it's it's a tragedy and especially then it's also gets applied by the way inappropriately within critical theory is you know well the science says this well here's a counter story to the science it's like sorry that's not not really how that works um you know well the data show that there were however many this is a big example that came up recently you know the data show that there were this many shootings of unarmed black people by police in 2018 1920 whatever it is and then the the reply to that is well it feels different and it's like, I mean, the number is still the number, <laughs> right, you know, right. and, and why it feels different then becomes, I think, a productive avenue for research. But then to say, you know, what we've seen over the last year, which is, oh, well, we have all of these rights to, you know, now loot, to burn, to throw down, to like we're seeing right now, the threats, if the trial of Derek Chelvin doesn't go the way yeah. that they want it yep. to go. You know, well, why? Because it feels to people who look like us, which most of them are like, "Stop burning down my neighborhood!" Um, Frankly, um, stop screwing up my business. Stop giving. Stop doing this. Uh, You know, but it feels like we're being murdered every day. Uh, I don't know what it feels like to be murdered every day when the number is nine. I just don't know what that, mm. I don't know how to connect to that. But when you start having counter stories or you saw the counter story in the science must fall movement to, you know, that there is no black magic. And they're like, yes, there is, you know, we can summon lightning or something like that. And it's, it just out of control at that point, you know, to say that this counter storytelling is not meant to open a door or whatever but it's used to specifically to win a debate or to yep. overturn actual evidence. Yep. At some point it leaves a path of wisdom pretty far. Um yes.
0: Absolutely. But I, right. I again
1: I still think it's a tragedy though. I, I, yeah. But this is a this is a theme within critical race theory to retell retelling time to to reframe ultimately through some critical perspective. In other words, if we really want to draw drag it back to to what the mechanism here is, is the original thing is the thesis, and then retelling time presents an antithesis. And yeah. at best, you're you're gonna to head toward a synthesis, which is the Hegelian, a dialectical process. Yeah, the Hegelian exactly. Right, yeah. That's right. Yes, sir. Or or you're going to follow Theodore Adorno, critical theorist method of negative dialectic, where you tell the thesis, you tell the antithesis, and you just leave it. And then the, the thesis and antithesis have to be compared rather than synthesized kind of separately and that's where all of a sudden some uh other how do you determine what's true at that point and this is what you see within critical race theory is well whoever's more oppressed their story counts more because we've heard it less and it's been excluded so now we have to listen to that instead of you know well we've heard the scientific perspective for years and that didn't do anything so now we're going to listen to this you know we feel like we're dying every day even though we're not yeah. perspective and have to forward that over. That's the logic there. That is the conclusion of the, say, negative dialectic, um, which is that you thesis, antithesis, leave at particulars rather than
0: synthesis. And so all the grievances of queer theory and gender theory and, and, and black feminism, um, pan-Africanism, all of that is kind of subsumed under this sort of counter-narrative idea. And a lot of it, you would say, is probably motivated by rage.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the whole thing is – that literally is the whole thing, is that the goal of all of these critical theories is to forward a counter-narrative to establish a Mm counter-hegemony that will then be used to seize power at a society that the people are angry at. Interesting. Often for for reasons that have bases but that are also distorted. Yes. I wouldn't say that they're usually, by the way, false reasons. Often that is the case, but much more often it's that they're distorted reasons. It's that that perspective, that pseudo real perspective on what's actually happening has distorted. It's like looking through like a dark lens or a a, a funhouse mirror or something at the circumstances. I used to say
0: looking through the wrong end of the telescope at the end. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Um, Another thing, anti-blackness. And this is kind of used to talk about capitalism it's used to talk about anything that a it's used to as an expression of emotional fervor i would have there were times where debaters in the round would say you know what judge this team you should write them off because they're being anti-black they're trying to say that black people should be um uh, should be uh, beholden to the capitalist system the capitalist system hates black people they would quote malcolm x and say and, and, and the black panthers and huey newton all of them and say we need to control our own production stuff like that um you know How did anti-blackness come out of the critical race theory tradition? Uh, Anti-blackness is one of the fundamental
1: assumptions of the critical race theory tradition. It is that the society, the whiteness in society is inherently anti-black. And so anti-blackness is actually a core property that is ascribed to whiteness. Mm. So this is where you also get the idea, by the way, that other races that are not black can be white adjacent. Hispanics can be white adjacent or Latinos, I guess, whichever people. Asians are certainly white adjacent, but it's and and this because they can share in anti-blackness. But then the, the the thesis then is that black people can never be white adjacent. Black people can never be admitted into whiteness because blackness is anti-whiteness, and anti-blackness is part of whiteness. And so they have this very you know black-white racial. Dichotomy that then gets forced upon everything, um, with this fundamental assumption that whiteness is excluding blackness, uh, as kind of like frames for viewing and enacting uh, interacting with the world. Whereas, you know, it doesn't seem to be what's really going on in many cases where you know they see the calls against cultural appropriation. What I see is again with the iron law of projection, I see a lot of um good good intended attempts to include or appreciate or get involved with the mixing of cultures as obviously happens, then you have these kind of again, sort of resentful, angry folks talking about rather than being enthused about this or taking working into it or taking advantage of it or capitalizing within it, they then say that that, you know, this is cultural appropriation and they're engaging in in what boils down to cultural protectionism and then projecting that onto whiteness you know, they're like, we're going to protect our own culture. And then we're going to say that that's because you exclude our culture, but they're actually excluding their culture themselves. Again, yeah. iron law book projections everywhere. And so, yeah, the concept of anti-blackness and I think it's one of the most damaging concepts in critical race theory holds that basically all the races in the world, except for the black race, which is of course, this complicated concept in and of itself um, are anti-black they, they have access to anti-blackness that gives them, grants them access to whiteness. That means that there's an incentive structure for them to be anti-black. And it's like a way to just put on steroids, this kind of black victimhood mentality uh, that you've heard many, you know, not kind of grievance mongering, Black thinkers over the past century point out, I mean, all the way back, but it is. Anti-blackness is set up to be one of the intrinsic properties of whiteness according to critical race theory. And so the explanation for why you see it utilized as a tool is because people following the civil rights era anyway, overwhelmingly understand that racism is wrong. Racism was an immoral thing that we should not have done. That is evil and I say we in the royal sense because we today weren't there. Um, Oh, yes. And uh, so we understand this and it therefore carries kind of like this moral weight to be able to just tag something with that. It's like, I don't know, it's in debate, I would even say it's like a form of cheating, right? It's like, make your case. James.
0: (laughs) Well, I know debate is all about, (laughs) <laughs> the debate is about cheating but here's the thing and and my friend michael marino who i i really advise you check out the guy is brilliant on youtube no um, i know
1: michael
0: oh you know bit. michael oh yeah brilliant guy brilliant guy you know he he underwent something uh he actually had he had a much worse treatment than i did um he yeah. was over in utah utah and and this professor ryan wash was like one of the biggest headshot um one of the biggest big shots in debate trying to make him argue that white folks should be sent into space and he's like, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. And and he explained, I made this major expose. He showed a vid, in his video, he showed a, a clip of Ryan Walsh, you know, arguing uh, about how down low men affect the black queer existence. <laughs> you know. Oh wow. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, and I'm not even gonna talk about that. But uh, you know that and that and he won the national championship with that argument. The down low men affect the, the black queer existence. Anyway. Holy cow.
1: And so that's based on <laughs> Derek Bell's space traders right the sending white people oh, really? to space oh really oh yeah, yeah so yeah, derek yeah. bell the creator yeah. of critical race theory wrote this horrific argument called space traders you can look it up it's 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 a doozy but basically he puts out this idea that if aliens came down and said we'll give you lots of gold and solve environmental problems and you know we'll fix your society or whatever but in exchange you have to give us all of your black people as slaves <laughs> the, the argument derek bell made was that you know all the white people would be like, yes, <laughs> take them.
0: Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's probably what it was based off of. Yeah, I think that there's a direct pipeline from critical theory, academia to academic debate. I, I think there is. I mean, it's not about making a case. It's about who can best, who can be the most woke of the teams competing. You know, I came See, in See, that's there. too bad
1: because it used yeah. to be like, who can pull the most argumentative tricks like your gish gallop <laughs> and all these other things and like tie yeah. the other guy up. Yes. And it, now it's like, that's what I'm saying, where it's like cheating. It's like, now you have this woke stuff and it's just like a race to, I don't know. It's, I don't know a better word than it's trashy, right? It's like just a it trashy is, right? way to try to try to win an academic sport. And the difference, this is important with debate. I've said this for a long time. The difference between debate and boxing is when there's a boxing match, you know who won,
0: Yes. right?
1: You know who won.
0: Yes.
1: And when there's a debate, you know, forty percent of the audience is just no. My guy still won, no matter what happened. Yeah. You know, and so maybe more than forty percent. And yeah. so it's like it, these things become interminable when you have that kind yeah. of a, a setup. And so these kinds of trashy tricks, it's 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 a. I've talked in in, in a podcast I did of my own one time about the difference between positive competition and negative competition, and positive competition. Mm-hmm. Is where people say, "Oh, wow, you know, Christian, you're really good at this." Well, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to go get better at this than you are. And you're like, "Yeah, right. Watch me. I'm going to train. I'm going to get better than you." Maybe it's you know, we're just selling tomatoes and we're going to grow the best tomatoes and yeah. provide the best service, or maybe it's we're going to run a race and you're going to beat me because I'm heavy and old. But um, <laughs> whatever it is, right? Positive competition is each each individual in the competitive arena is trying to improve themselves, and so what happens is you see a positive sum outcome negative competition is what was her name was it tanya harding that whacked nancy kerrigan in the knee with the club or whatever back you're too young i'm sorry (laughs) that's figure skating (laughs) so back in the day there was two figure skaters like olympic grade and one of them very famously like clubbed the other one in the knee right before like the olympic trials or whatever and and so it's like you can imagine like if you had your tomato stand and i have my tomato stand and i'm like You know, his has bugs. You know, (laughs) and it's—I'm not trying to elevate my product. I'm trying to denigrate your product, and it's like it's not the same to to have this race to wokeness and debate. But it's kind of the same: is that you're now engaging in these these negative competition aspects. It's a—it's a cheaper and easier way to get there, but it doesn't produce a positive sum outcome. So it produces a negative sum outcome, and so traditionally we have erected norms that kind of look down on that kind of behavior Hmm. and say, you know, this is somehow something's wrong with this. Negative competition is generally frowned upon. If you're always trashing the competition, we tend to now think, oh, there must be something wrong with your product. People talking good about the competition, you know, say, well, you know, so-and-so is really good at their tomatoes but here's what I do to get mine. You know, I fertilize them with 100% chicken poop or something that gets them better. (laughs) And you know, whatever it is. And uh, that, that makes it, you know, that shines positive light on you. Like, no, I believe in my, my competitor's product, but here's why I'm even better. That's positive. Some thinking versus, you know, his has bugs that's and then what are you going to say back oh mine have bugs well y- you should see the worms that get into his you know and then all of a sudden nobody wants any tomatoes because it's it's now negative some whereas if i'm like no christian's tomatoes are really good but i i did better um now it's like the message is still tomatoes are good in both cases right and you're saying the same thing no 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 james's tomatoes are awesome but no, I got the edge on this. You know, he's got the wrong varietal. I got the right one. And now it's still tomatoes are good. So it's positive sum. Everybody's selling more tomatoes because people believe tomatoes are good. Whereas if everybody believes tomatoes are infested, that's negative sum. Nobody's buying. It's very simple, really. But we have lost wokeness and critical theory have taken us away from believing in positive competition because positive competition is harder. That resentfulness, that resentment, leads to negative competition and it's easier it takes very little work to tear something down or criticize or call names or to just say i mean with the anti-black thing it's just so cheap oh that's anti-black and it's like well you're black so i can't argue with you because that's what you felt you know and it's like shit you know that and now what it's like the whole system just gets worse You,
0: you you are the most dynamic academic i've ever talked to I swear uh, I right, don't consider
1: myself an academic, I think. Oh, you don't. Oh, really? No, I quit that. Oh man, I'm embarrassed of academics now. Oh, I know you want to
0: be one, but No, no, no. You. No, I we want to be a new a pli-
1: generation of academics.
0: I want to be a political commentator, no academic. Okay oh yeah yeah you don't want to be one either i see you're like no no don't stick me with academic no no i didn't no no No. harvard no harvard no (laughs) it's like that
1: old it's all that old game show is like the whammies it was like press your luck and it's like the thing's going and it's like press your, you know the whack the thing that's like no whammy no whammy no but now it's like no ivy no ivy no ivy no no ivy oh harvard degree you're unemployed you know
0: no no Uh, i i I think that with the internet. And, and I think autodidacticism is much more possible with our current digital age right now. I think oh, that you totally. can. And so that's, I think that, and I think that if you have a YouTube channel and you start something and you do good content and you have informational videos, that's probably going to pay off more in the long run than going through, you know, decades or a decade or so of, 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 of schooling, um, getting your PhD, I don't know how long get a PhD, but getting your PhD, you know, spending all these loans and, you know, having to work wherever I, I think that the, the digital age is kind of just smash you know people like you and benjamin boyce are the new teachers of the of the future in my <laughs> opinion you know well we need we need schools for engineering
1: still oh no you no, know, no, no. The, I, I agree no the it's, technicals and this is yeah. the truth though there needs to be yeah. a divorce there needs to be a great divorce where the technical fields basically i think it's going to have to go this way the technical fields are just going to have to bid the universities uh ado and move on and find schools whether it's labs or you know their own their own stem schools or whatever like caltech was originally set up to be and largely still is but you know they're succumbing a little bit to wokeness now too uh to kind of keep it out the the rest of it you know there's no problem there's no problem if you want to be if you want to go to college for for history or literature or whatever, that's awesome. And I wish there were rigorous studies of that instead of just critique um, and revisionism now. But yeah. uh, and I know there are to some degree. I don't yeah. want to overstate the case, but the corrupt—they're too corrupted right now, and I just don't see a way back. Right, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, I even put on Twitter, you know, Harvard University is a clown college, and I kind of think that's true now. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know. And it's, uh, it's a shame. Publishing two plus two equals five. Like what the hell? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I I wanted to ask you about one more question because I know you got to go eventually, but but it's been wonderful talking to you, by the way, I I am. I'm just thrilled. Thank you so much for your time. Um, you are my favorite person in the public sphere right now. So just thank you so much. (laughs) Um, I'm serious. Uh, Um, but, um, so I noticed on your Twitter feed, um, like yesterday, I think you had some tension with a few Libertarian Party accounts, and oh, yeah. you call you call them LOL Bertarian. I don't know how you say it. Uh, Law libertarians Oh, okay, yeah. L- l- Law <laughs> It's not, so, all
1: not, right, hashtag,
0: right. not all Libertarians. Not hashtag. Not all Libertarians. Of course, yeah, but no, I think you know I consider myself a conservatarian right? So I, uh-huh. I I have I believe that certain traditional values are necessary. Um, for the preservation of society, but I also mm-hmm. think that liberty is a, essential as well. So sure. just very quick because we got to go like, like three minutes. You know, what would your political ideology be? Um, basically the same thing you just said,
1: but probably bent slightly more left. Okay. Uh, that's it. I okay. see myself as completely independent. I put a huge emphasis on liberty. Yeah. I don't consider myself as. Anti-government, as most people identify as libertarian, I understand, I think that there is a, or I believe that there is a role for the state and that the state should be held accountable, but also should be appropriate to serve its function. And I think it does, when it's in that position, have a pro-social function. It's not, I don't go so far as to say that taxes are theft and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite as that. I've described myself in the past as a slightly left-leaning minarchist uh, who believes in a bigger min than you do. Um, As far as social issues, I'm not woke in any regard, of course, and I value tradition, and traditional values and agree with you in the sense that you articulated it that they're key to maintaining a society. But my for myself, I'm actually extremely socially liberal. Um, I don't care what I think people should have values. I don't particularly care what they
0: are. Uh, And yeah. Yeah, I believe in values that preserve liberty. Anything else? Sure, of course. I'm not, yeah, I mean, like, if you're in, if you're into gay bashing, that's not me. I'm, I'm myself a no. social libertarian. But, like, if the values preserve liberty, I want to conserve them.
1: Yep. Yeah, truth, beauty, uh, responsibility, and merit are the values right. I put forth recently
0: on New Discourses as the values yeah. for a post-woke world. Yeah. All right. Well, James, thank you so much for being here. I hope you'll come back. I've enjoyed this conversation yeah. thoroughly. Yeah, man. Thank All you. Right. All right, no problem. And uh, everyone else, thank you and stay pensive. Bye-bye.